I'm Dr. Nathaniel Chin, and you're listening to Dementia Matters, a podcast about Alzheimer's disease. Dementia Matters is a production of the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. Our goal is to educate listeners on the latest news in Alzheimer's disease research and caregiver strategies. Thanks for joining us. Our guest today is Dr. Daniel Gibbs, a retired neurologist who spent 25 years caring for patients with Alzheimer's disease. Several years ago, Dr. Gibbs was diagnosed with early stage Alzheimer's disease. In his new book, A Tattoo on the Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease, Dr. Gibbs uses his unique perspective to illuminate what having early stage Alzheimer's is like, both from the patient's viewpoint and from a medical angle. Thank you, Dr. Gibbs, for joining us to talk about your experience and your new book. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thanks for asking me. I'm curious to learn what inspired the title of your book, A Tattoo on the Brain. You know, it, it's uh, funny. The The title of the book came to me before I even started writing it. And uh, there are really two aspects to it, one uh, figurative and, and one literal. The literal one is that uh, as I describe in my book, I had a, an adverse reaction to a study drug, aducanumab, uh, called ARIA, uh, amyloid-related imaging abnormalities. And this caused some uh, bleeding into my brain as well as swelling of the brain. And it was fairly severe, but I fully recovered from it uh, over the course of, of uh, several months. And the MRI abnormalities all went away with the exception of these little deposits of iron uh, called hemosiderin uh, that come, came from the blood. And hemosiderin is not all that different from the ink that's used by a tattoo artist. And that will probably be there for the rest of my life. So in a literal sense, I've got a, a tattoo, if you will, that probably will be with me uh, forever. Now, the, the uh, a more figurative sense uh, is that there's a tremendous stigma associated with Alzheimer's, as, as everybody knows. Uh, and people don't want to talk about it. People who have it don't want to admit that they have it, or they feel uncomfortable talking about it to friends and family. And I'm really on a mission to try and reduce the stigma of Alzheimer's disease and get us talking about it earlier. And you know, I don't have any tattoos, and although it's been suggested that I should get some, uh, my co-writer, Teresa Barker, early on was saying, you really need a tattoo. But my wife uh, killed that uh, idea. But uh, a tattoo, I think, is a, uh, is a sign of coming out. Uh, I mean, people get tattoos because they want to express themselves visually to the rest of the world. And so that's the sense of, of, of the other sense of a tattoo on my brain is, is you know, I'm out there talking about Alzheimer's disease, about my experiences with Alzheimer's disease, and how that may uh, inform the discussion going forward. Well, thank you for sharing that. And of course, we will ask you about, or I will ask you about aducanumab later on in our interview. Before I get to that, your training and experience in diagnosing patients with Alzheimer's disease helped you recognize the symptoms in yourself long before a person not intimate with the disease would have recognized these changes. What were these early signs of Alzheimer's disease that you recognized in yourself? Well, in retrospect, I think my first symptoms of Alzheimer's uh, occurred uh, more than 15 years ago when I started to lose my sense of smell. At the time, I didn't make that association. 
Uh, about a year after I first noticed it, though, I, I started to have these weird illusory odors that came out of nowhere. They were always the same, the smell of baking bread mixed with perfume. and They would last a few minutes uh, or as long as an hour. Uh, and they were distinctly unusual. Uh, they're called phantasmias. And uh, I still had no hint of, of Alzheimer's disease, and I had no family history that was obvious because both my parents died early from cancer. But it wasn't until I accidentally discovered that I have two copies of the APOE4 allele, which greatly increases my risk of getting Alzheimer's disease. And that was discovered uh, when my wife uh, decided we needed to, to get our DNA tested for genealogical purposes. And there was a black box that you had to un unlocked to get uh, results of uh, two neurological genes. Uh, and one was uh, a gene for hereditary Parkinson's, the LARC2 gene. And I was interested to think that, well, maybe I'm going to get Parkinson's because I, 80% of, of people with idiopathic, idiopathic Parkinson's disease have olfactory impairment. They lose their sense of smell. Uh, I was not aware at the time of the association of smell problems with Alzheimer's, but virtually everybody with Alzheimer's has some impairment of smell, but most don't realize it. And uh, I think the reason that people like neurologists like me, at least uh, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, weren't aware of it was because uh, by the time we were seeing patients with Alzheimer's back then, it was late in the disease and you know patients didn't mention it and we didn't know enough to, to ask about their sense of smell. But in any case, I didn't have the LARC2 gene. I didn't have Parkinson's. But I was shocked to see that I had two copies of APOE4, just, just out of the blue. At that time, this was in 2012, I had no cognitive impairment at all. I was still a, uh, I was in an academic setting at the time. I was a program director for, for the neurology residency, leading a busy life. And uh, it, was, uh, it was a real shock. About a year or so later, I just started to notice you know, some mild cognitive issues that normally would be explained by natural aging. I had increased trouble uh, recalling the names of colleagues uh, at times, not all the time. Um, I had moved to a new office, uh, and I never could learn the telephone number there or the address. But, you know, in fairness... I rarely used that landline and uh, I didn't write letters, you know, we were doing emails. So that didn't really bother me that much at all. Um, but I, I did, I was concerned enough that I asked a friend of mine who's a dementia specialist uh, to do some off the record testing. And he, I can't remember the name of the program, but it was a computerized program. And uh, I did really well on it. I, uh, I scored in the 95th percentile in all of the cognitive domains save one, and that was verbal memory. And uh, I scored in the 50th percentile. So the 95th percentile means that I was better than 95% of all the people who took the test. In the 50th percentile, I was exactly average. So it was still normal, but it was very different than the other domains. And, and that was kind of a, a warning sign that there might be something amiss with that part of my brain involved in verbal memory. And of course, that's one of the first... Uh, uh, parts of the brain that is uh, attacked in many, many if not most people with Alzheimer's disease. So I, I within a year of that, I did retire because uh, I wanted to stop practicing medicine before I got into trouble cognitively.
Well, just now and in your book, you talk about how most of the patients you were seeing in clinic already had moderate to severe stage dementia when you diagnosed them. You, on the other hand, were at the opposite end of the spectrum when you were diagnosed. So what were your impressions now from the patient perspective of the clinic process in being evaluated? And where do you think there's room for improvement? I would say that even at that time, in uh, by the time I was starting to see dementia specialists in 2014, 2015, there, there still was this... Uh, attitude that I certainly had as, as a neurologist early in my days of, of trying to reassure people that, no, everything's okay. Don't worry about it. And I understand where that's coming from because in the early days in, of my practice, we had absolutely nothing to offer people with dementia. And so we tried to reassure people that, well, maybe you have Alzheimer's disease, but you know, maybe you don't and, and don't worry about it. But things have changed. And, and I, I have to say that I got a little frustrated that I was acing all these tests, but I you know, still had you know, things that I noticed uh, as cognitive impairment. Now you have this beautiful chapter on family and the need to look beyond DNA when it comes to diseases like Alzheimer's disease. Can you share with our audience your view on family history? Yeah. I mean, the family history is not just your genes. I mean, that's a big part of it. But uh, you know, the family history also is how we're raised. For example, a big part of our resilience against Alzheimer's uh, is, and this is a little controversial, but this concept of cognitive reserve. And, and it's something that we build up from childhood on, uh, and it is greatly influenced by our family. And, and how, in, in my case, my father was a real mentor in developing my interest in science and, and, and uh, expanding my brain. We went to lectures at Caltech together every week when I was in middle school, you know, public lectures. Uh, and uh, my mother was an amateur musician, and, and I really learned my, my love of music from her. So, you know, there, there are things that you get from your parents, obviously, more than just the genes they pass on. And, and, uh, and that's a, a really important part. Uh, in mitigating some of the uh, effects of, of the Alzheimer's process. It's a very holistic approach to viewing something called family history, and I appreciate that. Yeah. You also found out about that increased genetic risk of developing Alzheimer's disease really based on a commercial direct-to-consumer ancestry product. Uh, it was not your anticipated purpose when you got it. Um, and so in essence, you received no genetic counseling or preparation before learning this information other than really clicking that box that you described. So what do you say to people who are considering direct-to-consumer genetic testing, both as the recipient of this, learning something quite significant, but then also as a provider, a, a neurologist who might have had patients coming in who have done something similar to you? Yeah, I, I, I strongly oppose uh, the direct-to-consumer uh, uh, testing in the absence of counseling. Uh, and I would urge people to, to, if they're interested, by all means, uh, get tested, but uh, do it in conjunction with someone who can advise you on the risk. For example, uh, in uh, uh, when I first got my results back in 2012, I, there was a bulletin board, I, I can't remember if that, I don't know if that's the right term to use, but you know, where people who had APOE4 could uh, discuss their, their feelings. And uh, that was part of this, this genetic testing uh, company. 
And uh, there was a woman who had found out that she was uh, had one copy of Vaporweave 4, and she was so upset that she was committing, she was considering committing suicide. And uh, I was just appalled. And and I I never do social media, and uh, but I jumped on and, and I said uh, that uh, hold on a minute your risk is slightly increased, but you're probably much more likely to die with Alzheimer's disease than with Alzheimer's. And, you know, and hopefully, you know, that made a difference. Um, but people need to know, and certainly if you have two copies, your risk goes up considerably. But with one copy, it, it doesn't. It goes up maybe twofold. Uh, and, and people need to understand those sorts of things and, 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 and how it, it should influence or not influence the way you approach life. So for you, did knowing your risk of Alzheimer's disease help or harm you? Oh, I think it helped because it, it uh, allowed me to be more proactive about uh, getting a diagnosis and then trying to do what I could to, to mitigate my risk. And certainly you have made a lot of changes in your, or at least enhanced some of those lifestyle habits in your book. And it's the same habits, of course, that we cover on this podcast um, one of which, or two of which that you describe so well in your book is physical activity, exercise, uh, and your healthy diet. Did you find any particular habit, healthy habit, to be difficult to uh, incorporate into your day? Yeah, that's an in- interesting question. And the answer is no. Um, the exercise, you know, I'm re- retired now, so I have plenty of time to exercise. But that is so important. I mean, the data is best for exercise, uh, you know, for uh, lowering the risk of getting Alzheimer's and and slowing the progression than for any of these other things. I don't mean to minimize the other things, but but ec- the data for exercise is unimpeachable, at least in the early stages of the disease. So the only good studies that that I've seen that do not show a benefit from exercise are those done in people with advanced disease. You know, by then, it's too late. The horses are out of the barn. The nerve cells are dead. And Exercise uh, can do good things at that point, increase sense of well-being and, and mobility, but it doesn't seem to have effect on the progression of the disease. But if you start it early, and by early, it's looking like uh, midlife is, is, the, is the, the target time. And, and that's hard because, um, you know, that's the busiest time of our life. Uh, you know, we've got kids, we've got uh, work, we've got dreams. And, and, and this is where knowing your risk can be helpful. You know, people say, well, just, you know, who cares about whether or not you know you're going to get out or you have risk factors for Alzheimer's, just go ahead and start exercising and eating well. But I have to say, finding out I was an APOE4 homozygote, meaning I had two copies, gave me a big seat, uh, kick in the seat of the pants to, to really get motivated to do these things. And I really can't emphasize that enough. So exercise for me was not a difficult thing to take on. I had plenty of time to do it. And, and frankly, I uh, feel not only physically better, but mentally better a- after exercise. And there's data to support that, that you get a, an acute boost from exercise as well. Now, diet is an interesting thing as well, because the, the, the diets that are recommended for Alzheimer's uh, are Mediterranean style. The, I go into detail about a variant of it called the MIND diet. And a lot of uh, what is in these diets are the sort of uh, green leafy vegetables that a lot of people think they don't like uh, because they have a, you know, a bitter taste like kale. Or, or I have no problem with that because with my loss of smell, I have virtually no sense of taste. So everything tastes the same to me. So uh, I have no trouble 
gobbling down kale. I can eat it raw, uh, and 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 I actually kind of like that bitter flavor now because it's something I can taste. So I guess ironically, uh, it's e- easier for me to to uh, chow down on on some of these things that you know George Bush, which George Bush or was it Bill Clinton who didn't like broccoli? I, I can't remember, but um, you know the, the famously people turn their noses up. Uh, are, are not hard at all. So you may you may have that to look forward to that as you develop Alzheimer's disease, you're less discriminating about what you eat. I suppose that's a positive perspective. Thank, thank yeah. you for sharing that. <laughs> um. You know, the other thing on that is that uh, uh, I, I do like to have a glass of, of red wine with with my dinner, which is is okay. Uh, but I I uh, don't have to spend a lot of money on wine anymore because I cannot tell the difference between, uh, you know, a really fancy wine because I can't smell it. I can't smell the aroma. Uh, the only, th- my only, uh, cutoff is, is the acidity. You know, if it's really acid, I don't like that, but I, uh, I don't spend a lot on, on good wines. So you sound like a cheap date is what it comes to. I am. Yeah. I am. I'm sure yeah. your wife appreciates that. <laughs> <laughs> and after you retired, you actually became quite involved in Alzheimer's disease research as a participant. And so how important was that for you to be involved in research? And what did you gain from being a research participant? Yeah, it, it's it's a big part of my life now. Uh, I've been in, I think, four studies now, and I, I've screened for another one, which I failed to get into. That was the uh, one of the tau monoclonal antibodies because I wasn't cognitively bad enough. And and so I would say that's their loss because they'll probably want to, to get people like me sooner rather than later, because I think the sooner you start these things, the, the better. And I have found, I've, so I've, uh, the first study I was in was a longitudinal neuroimaging study uh, looking at a, a then uh, experimental tau PET scan tracer, which has now been approved, but back then it was experimental. And looking at what happens in, over the years with people who are at risk for Alzheimer's disease. And so I started that in 2015 and then had all the scans repeated in, in 2018. And that was really fascinating to be able to see the tau and amyloid, uh, tau PET scans. I had amyloid PET scans, MRI scans, I had an FDG PET scan, which we don't use much anymore, but being able to see the changes that occurred in my brain. For example, uh, when, when I first looked at my, my first uh, amyloid PET scan, my eye was really drawn to amyloid deposition in the uh, area of the piriform cortex and in the medial orbital frontal cortex, which are both uh, important areas for olfactory processing. And I thought that was pretty cool to see that correlate with with uh, uh, some of my olfactory issues. The, the major study I was in was the aducatumab uh, engaged trial. And I loved doing that. I had to travel from Portland down to San Francisco at least once a month, but that was kind of a fun thing. I, you know, I, I made a day trip out of it. I got the six, six o'clock flight and got uh, to the area around the campus uh, at Mission Bay in San Francisco in time to get breakfast at my favorite coffee shop there. And then I, my infusion would start uh, usually at noon and then I'd get a late afternoon flight back to Portland. Uh, and it, it was it was uh, a lot of fun. I met some great people and made friends in the, the research center there at UCSF, UC San Francisco. And uh, it, it was a great experience. I mean, so I really liked that. The other two studies I was in were more minor things, um, you know, testing an activity tracker, a cognitive tracker, 
comparing it to uh, activity levels and then uh, testing a, a new, I shouldn't say new, it's thousands of years old, but uh, a, a herbal, possible herbal remedy for uh, Alzheimer's disease in the phase one study. You really used your, your diagnosis, your symptoms to become an advocate of Alzheimer's disease research, to, to really promote the importance of research, which I think is evident in your book as you describe it. You know, I think I have to ask you now, with the recent FDA approval of aducanumab as a clinical treatment, not for research purposes, you know, how do you feel about that decision? Well, I have mixed feelings. Uh, you know, I have two hats. I have the, the person with Alzheimer's hat, and then I have the neurologist hat. And with the you know, person with Alzheimer's uh, hat, I'd have to say I'm pleased that there's been approval of the first disease-modifying drug. Uh, for Alzheimer's that has been shown to reduce amyloid in the brain and uh, seems to slow cognitive impairment in some people. Uh, wearing my neurologist hat, I'm not as enthusiastic. I, I think there are a lot of issues with the FDA approval. Uh, there were two identical trials. One was positive, one was negative. The uh, After the fact, uh, Re-examination of data, which is statistically, I shouldn't say bogus, but it, it's, it's fraught, really doesn't fully explain the discrepancy. And I, I pretty strongly feel there should have been a requirement for a third trial before approval, but I know this is controversial. I also worry that uh, the drug will be misused. I mean, it it was, has only been tested in people with early disease. Uh, there's been nothing done, no studies that I know of in late disease, but I'm afraid it'll be used inappropriately in people with late disease. And I think that could be disastrous because I think side effects are likely to be much greater in people with advanced disease. We haven't really talked about ARIA much, but uh, ARIA is the swelling of the brain or bleeding to the brain that occurs frequently in these trials, but is usually... Uh, Asymptomatic uh, doesn't usually cause big problems, but it can cause problems. And it, it's thought to be due to amyloid in the walls of blood vessels in the brain that occur in most people with Alzheimer's disease called amyloid angiopathy. And the antibody attacks that amyloid in blood vessels as well, causing them to leak. And in older people who have more fragile uh, blood vessels and will have a lot of more amyloid in the end stages of their disease, I think we would see uh, not only microhemorrhages, but probably uh, more significant, what we call lobar hemorrhages uh, into the brain. So I'm very concerned about it being used without, outside of a, of a research study in people with advanced disease. If I may ask you, Dan, as a patient, would you sign up for this drug? And then if you were still in clinical practice, would you prescribe this drug? Well, as a patient, I, I wouldn't because I, I had very serious uh, res response to it. Uh, so there's something about my blood vessels that makes them leak in response to even a very low dose. So I, I had uh, ARIA after getting just four doses of the drug and, and, and only reached three milligrams per kilogram. And the dose that will be used is 10 milligrams per kilogram. So um, there's something about, I probably have amyloid angiopathy out of proportion to the amyloid plaque burden in my brain. So I would not be a good candidate for, for this. 
in fact, uh, there's another drug uh, that I'm very high on, uh, the Lilly drug, uh, which I can't remember the name of right now, that I think has a lot of promise, and I, I hope it gets approved as well. I mean, I hope the studies are done that, that give us the data to approve it, but it, it looks promising. But I don't think I would take that either, uh, because I think I would be at risk uh, for a severe hemorrhage as well. So I don't know if that answers your question. Now, now, would I, as, as a doctor, would I prescribe it? I, I think I would, uh, I would prescribe it to someone with early stage disease if they wanted it. Uh, but not to people with advanced disease. Well, thank you for sharing that. And I know I put you on the spot with that, but I, I appreciate your perspective, mm. both as a, you know, a neurologist and as a potential patient. Mm. In your book, you wrote about the importance of living in the moment each and every day. You also adopted, as we talked about, those very brain-healthy habits in hopes of slowing the progression of the disease. How do you find the balance between enjoying daily life and engaging in proactive activities meant to improve the future? Well, I don't know that that's a, a balance as though it's one or the other. I mean, it's all part of, part of the same same thing. So I have no trouble with, with doing the things that I need to do to help protect my brain uh, because uh, I enjoy doing them now. So I don't, eating, I don't enjoy all that much, but I don't hate it, I just do it. Uh, but the exercise, I really, I really do. Even you know my dog now, you know, Jack, who uh, features in the book, uh, is my walking companion. But you know he's he's getting middle aged, and sometimes he's not as enthusiastic as I want him to be. I had to trick him into going up to the woods yesterday, and we ended up having a great walk. But he started to put on his brakes just at the end of our block. But I, I took him on a different route to get to the woods, and we had a good almost three mile walk. Um, but but more and more, I'm taking walks by myself because I just I want to make sure I get enough. I try for fifteen thousand steps a day, and and you know go for a minimum of ten thousand, um, and nobody knows what the exact amount is. And 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 you know it is important that you get your heart rate up. So just walking, you know, casually is maybe not enough. Um, we walk in the hills, and and I have a fitness tracker, and I make sure that my heart rate is up. Okay, I'm getting lost in where we were going on this. Actually, that was exactly what I was hoping you were going to say, which is that really these healthy habits of exercise and diet and sleep and, and brain stimulation and so being social, did you actually enjoy them too? Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I have to say that the social part of it is the hardest because uh, as, as you well know, apathy is a big problem with Alzheimer's disease. And even in the early stages, you know, I, I can feel my apathy. And I think that probably is because one of the first uh, areas that gets hit in many people with Alzheimer's is the prefrontal cortex. And that's an, that's an area of our brain where we make plans. You know, it, it's our motivating part of our brain. And I just, you know, have trouble getting off my butt and, and wanting to do things. And, you know, the pandemic has been kind of a gift in a sense, because I, I have an excuse not to go to parties and, and that sort of the other thing, which I, I, I don't like for, for a number of reasons now. I've never been particularly social, but in a social group before the pandemic, it was, it was very hard for me uh, to be in a room with multiple people talking because I couldn't uh, compartmentalize the conversations and, uh, and I couldn't understand anything. So my filter wasn't there. Uh, so I do have trouble with, with the apathy and I have to make a point of, of interacting with people. And that's getting easier in a sense now uh, that the, the, the uh, 
pandemic restrictions are, are easing, at least we get to see our kids and grandkids. I've got a two-year-old downstairs, you know, <laughs> who I hope is staying quiet. In one chapter, you wrote about the fear of Alzheimer's disease and the power it can have over us. You describe a woman you saw in clinic who took her own life because of her diagnosis. And in the chapter, you share that people often think about the end stage of Alzheimer's disease when they think about the disease itself without recognizing the early stages of the disease. How can we reframe the way people think about Alzheimer's disease and emphasize the opportunities to live life in the earliest stages and, and live it at, to the fullest that we can? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think this is a really, really important thing because um, I, I, you know, my goal in life is to live long enough with a healthy brain that I die of something else before I die of Alzheimer's disease. And I'm not being facetious. I'm being absolutely, um, that's what I mean. Uh, because even with the, the things that we have now, with that my brain is going to continue to deteriorate as the years go on. But if I can slow that process, then something else will get me first. And, and that's what I want. I mean, uh, it sounds kind of gruesome, but uh, I think we need to focus on the, the decades before the end stage of the disease, when we have pathology um, in our brain, but we don't know it yet, and try to do something to slow the progression of that neuropathology before it becomes symptomatic, and then once it becomes symptomatic, before it gets disabling. I appreciate that response, Dan. And as a geriatrician, I don't think it's gruesome at all. To me, it shows your, your view on life and quality of life, as well as your acceptance of mortality, which I think is a healthy thing uh, and needed in, mm -hmm. in our time. Uh, you've intentionally shared your story publicly, both in the news and in this book. Was that a difficult decision? And what have you learned in this whole process? No, it wasn't difficult at all because, I mean, really from the get-go, I, I really wanted to get the word out because I had this, if not unique, unusual dual uh, view on Alzheimer's as both a neurologist and a, as someone who has the disease. And I, and I have to thank uh, Dr. Gil Rabinovich at UCSF, who was the first one who urged me to write about uh, my dual viewpoints on Alzheimer's. And, and I did that in a a paper in JAMA um, Neurology a few years ago, and it got a you know, f fairly good response, both from neurologists and, and uh, the public. Uh, and the whole idea was to, to try to change the emphasis on how we view disease, uh, Alzheimer's disease, into the, the, the whole spectrum of the disease and focus on what we can do with early recognition and management, uh, because I strongly feel that, that that's going to be the future of, of controlling Alzheimer's disease. We're not going to cure it in the end stages. We've got to get it in the early stages, slow it down, reverse it if we can. But before a lot of brain cells have been killed, that's the time to intervene. My last question for you, Dan, what do you hope the reader takes away from this book and your story? Well, I, I, I hope that they, they carry away that Alzheimer's doesn't have to be that scary. Uh, and, and I think if you approach it with what can I do to minimize my risk and slow progression and become proactive, that in itself is, is uh, healthy 
psychological medicine for you. I mean, it, because it, it makes it easier. Uh, you're less helpless. So if you actually have a way of, of fighting the tiger and, and uh, uh, it, it just you know, improves your quality of life uh, as well as prolonging your life. Well, Dan, thank you for coming on Dementia Matters today and talking to us about your book, A Tattoo on the Brain, A Neurologist's Personal Battle Against Alzheimer's Disease. I must tell you, I greatly enjoyed reading it, and I hope our listeners do too. And and thank you again for your time and perspective. Thanks very much for having me. I, I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Dementia Matters. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified about upcoming episodes. You can also listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to play the Dementia Matters podcast. And please rate us on your favorite podcast app. It helps other people find our show and lets us know how we're doing. Dementia Matters is brought to you by the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center. The Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center combines academic, clinical, and research expertise from the University of Wisconsin School of Medicine and Public Health and the Geriatric Research, Education, and Clinical Center of the William S. Middleton Memorial Veterans Hospital in Madison, Wisconsin. It receives funding from private, university, state, and national sources, including a grant from the National Institutes of Health for Alzheimer's Disease Centers. This episode of Dementia Matters was produced by Rebecca Wazaleski and edited by Kaylin Rowerdink. Our musical jingle is Cases to Rest by Blue Dot Sessions. To learn more about the Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and Dementia Matters, check out our website at adrc.wisc.edu. That's adrc.wisc.edu. Follow us on Facebook at Wisconsin Alzheimer's Disease Research Center and find us on Twitter at Wisconsin ADRC. If you have any questions or comments, email us at dementiamatters at medicine.wisc.edu. Thanks for listening.